Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, the monthly podcast series brought to you by the team that produce Global Cosmetics News. Today, with the help of my panel, we will discuss how does the beauty industry rethink the travel retail distribution channel in light of continued travel bans, travel corridors, quarantines, and domestic tourism. And to answer these questions and more, let me first introduce this month's panel. Hello to Nicole Fall, CEO and founder of Asian Consumer Intelligence. Hello to Laura Santa, Senior Retail Analyst at Global Trends Agency, WGSN. Hello to Ashley Dananuk, founder of Chosen and Alarice, a China marketing expert agency. At the beginning of 2020, the travel retail distribution channel represented one third of revenues for some of the traditional beauty brands. The global pandemic exposed the beauty industry's over-reliance on this sector that had been a growth winner for years. With many traditional retailers' doors still shut, what should, could the post-pandemic travel retail experience look like? Nicole, let's start with the social drivers transforming the Southeast Asian travel market. What we're seeing in Southeast Asia, um, and obviously um, a bit like the rest of the world, most people are still grounded within their countries, but domestic travel has um, been increasing. Governments in places like um, Thailand and Indonesia, um, as well as further north in Japan, have been encouraging their populations to um, travel domestically. Um, some cases have been a bit disastrous. Cases went up in Japan when that happened, but um, in Thailand, it's been quite successful. And what we're seeing, I, we, um, we actually spoke to somebody the other day as part of a, a trend report that we're doing um, in a separate subject. Um, basically, we spoke to someone who organizes sort of, you know, travel packages. And, um, and obviously, he's now refocused his business to domestic travel. And what he's really seeing from Thailand is um, a shift towards more wellness and, uh, and health-oriented travel that's going on. So apart from people rediscovering their own countries rather than you know, using cheap domestic flights to get around the region, uh, people are now kind of going back in and rediscovering you know, the, the lesser-known places. So Thais are just kind of shifting away from Phuket and looking at maybe you know, Isan, the east, um, and within that, then looking at um, wellness um, you know, uh, places they can go. And within that, um, for the beauty industry, there's obviously quite interesting implications because people are kind of really focusing on self-care. So that's what we're seeing down in Southeast Asia. And is wellness a trend in Europe and Middle East, Laura? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that we're still grappling with here with here over in, in Europe is obviously um, we are completely grounded and people can't um, travel um, and people, especially here in London where I still am, is they, you know, we're not actually supposed to supposed to leave our homes. Um, so what we've seen is this big kind of shift towards just life being lived online um, and this kind of shift to everything digital. And that's had a really huge um, effect on kind of consumers' expectations. So which are, you know, really, really ramping up across kind of all aspects of 
of fulfillment when it comes to retail. So things like um, at-home delivery, you know, speed of delivery, um, flexibility of returns, um, affordability of delivery and things like that. Um, but, you know, people are being much more sort of sustainably minded when it comes to um, shopping online. I think people are kind of demanding greener delivery. Um, they're seeing the kind of impacts that being stuck in their homes is having on, um, you know, on the environment, things like excessive packaging and, and carbon emissions and things like that. So, yes, definitely wellness of the planet is a consideration. Um, but also, you know, of course, consumers are very, very health conscious. You know, they can't really go out to stores um, and when they, you know, they can't travel. But but when they are able to, um, hygiene is going to be a huge, huge, huge factor. Place is going to have to be very um, very compelling to visit um, to actually kind of get them out of their homes, but they're also going to have to be, you know, very safe. And people are going to have um, new expectations in terms of things like in-store safety protocols, um, product availability, convenience, things like that. So they're going to want to know that, um, you know, the item is in stock that they're actually going to want to buy um, to make it worth their while when they actually do leave their home to, to go out or to travel. And in China, Ashley? In China, I think it's probably cosmetics-wise the most dynamic market in the world right now with a lot of untapped potential, even though it's you know one of the largest world markets already. Um, in the past several, several years, we've seen um, cosmetics being extremely popular, not only in higher-tier cities, but also in lower-tier cities. Um, Chinese, um, I think, overtook a lot of countries in the past five years, and they are right now the second biggest uh, world market after the United States, and that happened already three years back in 2018. Um, on a yearly basis, the increase is between 4% to 5% year over year. And um, there's definitely, uh, the whole market is very much dominated by international brands when it comes to higher uh, tier cities and more sophisticated consumers. But when it comes to lower tier cities, we see a lot of domestic brands thriving. So this pandemic has actually offered a phenomenal opportunity for those domestic brands to further expand, to further take a grip on the market. But at the same time, a lot of international brands and cosmetics and skincare, um, international brands uh, from these categories are um, actually also tapping into new markets, trying new things with live streaming, with virtual influencers, with VR trials, with experiential shops. So the whole cosmetics industry in China right now, be it domestic or international, is extremely vibrant, extremely um, uh, exciting. Uh, it's moving very fast. And we have, of course, very new consumer um, groups also entering from uh, let's say older people, we call them silverhead generation from lower tier cities or uh, soft boys. These are the young guys that start basically using skincare and cosmetic products by the time they're 14, 15, 16. So all that is happening in China. Very exciting, I would say. And thinking of travel retail, Nicole, what are the digital drivers that are supporting the Southeast Asian markets transformation? Seeing in Southeast Asia actually is quite interesting. So Air Asia, which is one of the big budget airlines in the region, um, I was in uh, Q3, Q4 last year, announced that it was actually setting up its own super app. And basically with a super app, um, as we know, what these um, apps do is utilize enormous databases. So in the case of um, 
uh, AirAsia, they'll have about 75 million people in their database. And what they're trying to do is really, you know, as you can imagine, their business is fairly destroyed, a bit like every every single um, carrier in the region. Um, what they're doing is effectively looking at selling them other things. So digitally speaking, you know, um, duty-free would have been purchased generally on the plane or in the shops prior into the airport or any other kind of travel area. Um, but now we're sort of seeing that move obviously more online and companies like AirAsia with their super apps and so on and so forth, really enabling that push. And then with that, really collecting the data on what people are buying and then being able to sort of segment that down. So that's what we're seeing over in this part of the world. And it's kind of, you know, it's obviously very exciting because, you know, we're going to have access to um, new insights into who's shopping, where and why. Um, and effectively, you know, big companies like Lotte, for example, which were, you know, they're conglomerates, they have, you know, sort of supermarkets, as well as the beautiful um, duty free stores, they're also looking at how they can enable their businesses better through digital. And in say, Seoul, they're now promising sort of two hour delivery times. So effectively, it's sort of faster, bigger, um, and uh, and turning into more resources, whether it's, you know, through, um, you know, the, the loans that we're seeing coming through as well, you know, people have been able to buy those in installments, um, as well as more items through one super app. And in Europe, Laura, what is digital transforming the travel retail market? I think what we're seeing is this kind of omni-channel proposition being rolled out where retailers and brands are really trying to kind of speak to the customer where they are, um, whether that's in the airport or whether they're at home, um, through kind of new propositions around things like click and collect. Um, so Dubai, for example, um, Dubai Duty Free um, actually set up a home delivery service in June last year. Um, and they're kind of really trying to sort of boost sales while the restrictions were persisting with this click and collect service, um, introducing new things like home delivery where people could, you know, order online or, or select products and then, and then have the orders come in. Um, so things like that are kind of taking off, but also just continuing what Nicole was saying really around this sort of pivot towards live video and, and live selling online. Um, a lot of luxury businesses over here in Europe are experimenting with that. Um, so you've got Gucci, which is kind of they've sort of taken their store in in Florence in Italy um, and they've essentially sort of transformed it into almost a broadcast studio for live stream selling so they've um they've closed the store or the store's closed obviously and then they've got their kind of store associates inside almost using the store as a bit of a sort of tv studio where they're um selling over um over phones over zoom over facetime over whatsapp call um to their uh high net worth individuals you know that they're, they're top 1% customers who are at home and they're kind of taking them around the store um, and selling to them in that way so you know your customer could be in China your customer could be in Singapore or whatever but they want to buy um, you know in Italy and they can't travel to Italy obviously so that's how they're kind of targeting that customer who's at home digitally um, and we're seeing this massive massive rise really in, in this sort of shift towards towards live video um, towards kind of live selling um, and I think it's quite you know it's quite authentic it's um it's a really sort of key engagement tool for driving sales and, and, and engaging authentically with customers um, and it's also a really nice way to kind of innovate around sort of high-end product launches and things like that so you know if you've got um a particular product dropping or launching then you can kind of um 
tell your customers about it via uh, digital channels and kind of continue this sort of intimate one-on-one dialogue with them that you might not be able to have at the moment um, in person. And what can the rest of the world learn from China, Ashley? Well, I would say uh, the rest of the world is already learning. So what Laura just now mentioned uh, about uh, omnichannel in China, we call it new retail, this merger between online and offline. And uh, just now, uh, Nicole and Laura both spoke about uh, live streaming and online selling. Well, in China, when it comes to cosmetics, the penetration rate of online shopping has exceeded 70%. And we see, uh, as mentioned, a lot of, uh, let's say, virtual reality, like try-ons that are integrated inside the platform. So there's not that's nothing special, not something that the brand needs to build, but just you go to JD as a platform, you go to Tmall as a platform, be it cross-border e-commerce when you want to sell, as uh, Laura said, from Italy to China, or it is within the same market, right, within uh, mainland China, and essentially you have this technology that helps you try it on. Or we have also a lot of live streaming, obviously a lot of people um, running those live shows, and um, as Laura said, sometimes shops are being turned into live live streaming studios. But in China, we go a step forward and further. And we have indeed this co-live streaming places. So it's like co-working place. There is a co-live streaming place where small merchants, they don't rent an office or a retail store to sell stuff. They rent a studio where one or two or 10 people sit and they live stream about the product. And very often that product is also cosmetics. So essentially, um, there's a lot of live streaming going on. There's also a lot of virtual live streaming. So um, a couple of weeks ago, in fact, before 11.11, which is China's biggest online shopping festival, uh, Tmall launched this virtual live streamer where you as a brand, if you're present on Tmall, you can program your own live streamer. Is it a girl or a boy? What is that? hair color, what is he or she wearing, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can also program what is their um, essentially response to the customer. So this virtual influencer can live stream for you, endorsing different products, offering different tips about the season, uh, creams, skin types, et cetera, et cetera, 24 seven. And right now I would say virtually all big uh, international uh, cosmetic brands and most Chinese brands present online on a platform such as Tmall are using that. Um, besides that, we of course also have this immersive uh, stores where it is merging online and offline. And of course, China is uh, recovering uh, and has recovered uh, faster than the rest of the world um, uh, because of this pandemic. And we have domestic travel, even though right now it's very much depressed, about 70%. Actually, this CNY, this Chinese New Year, we had about 70% less people traveling because there was this government directive not to travel and celebrate a spring festival uh, locally. But nonetheless, we can go to retail stores. We can go uh, outside and we can travel, essentially. So that is why offline places are truly being transformed into uh, studios, into experiential uh, salons, into something where uh, you are encouraged to jump or smile at the mural and collect points and essentially convert them into some sort of social currency. And Nicole, across Southeast Asia, are there any environmental drivers assisting the evolution of the travel retail sector? Whenever I come on to um, this show, I always I'm always kind of the uh, the gloomy one about the environment from um, you know uh, APAC, and I'm going to be that person again. So basically, you know, this region has been hit particularly badly by um, the lack of travel. You know, the sort of the fastest growing countries in the world 
um, that have converted to, um, you know, becoming travel locations. Most of them are in Asia. And the reality is, is that, you know, I think a million people a day have, you know, are losing their jobs in the region. Um, you know, just for example, um, the Association of Asia PAC Airlines, I think, you know, it was the end of last year, said that only 1.1 million, uh, million international passengers flew on APAC carriers in September, which is just 3.6% of the total from, um, you know, a year be before that. Um, and, you know, Cathay Pacific has said that, you know, um, it, it doesn't expect anything like its uh, pre-pandemic passenger service to recover until 2022. So in this region, it's been hugely devastating because just so many countries rely on tourism um, for their, you know, their income. And effectively, um, this is, you know, the environment is going to be low priority as governments and businesses try and get back to work. And effectively, as soon as, you know, travel can come back, you know, governments and, um, you know, the travel industry will be encouraging it. And, you know, this idea about sort of low carbon um, travel and, and worrying about the environment will go back out the window again. You know, this is just not important. I mean, to really put it, you know, into perspective, Bali, which, as you can imagine, really relies on tourism. Um, last summer, I think um, I read that 10 people arrived through its airport last June vis-a-vis, um, -vis, you know, half a million um, a few months before that, obviously before um, the pandemic really hit. So these countries are just in dire straits and it's just getting worse. So, um, no, I just see, you know, businesses really, really focusing on how do we get this um, back to where it was and get people back into jobs because that's all that really matters, I think, from the, you know, from the government perspective. And what about across Europe, Laura? You know, I think kind of just to echo um, what the person before me was saying, I think, you know, we were making quite a lot of headway in terms of consumer focus on sustainability and consumers prioritising sustainability until the pandemic hit last year when kind of, you know, focusing on things like recycling and um, and, and living um, a kind of more low impact life actually took a bit of a backseat to just everyone being in survival mode and people kind of buying everything they could online and stockpiling and things like that. But, you know, I think the way that people are behaving in, in Europe is more kind of... Um, you know, this sort of focus on, on the circular economy and um, trying to kind of extend the life cycle of the products that they buy. Um, this isn't necessarily having a knock-on effect on the travel market, but I think it's really important the kind of understanding um, a more of a holistic view on how people are actually sort of thinking about things that they buy um, and products that they engage with. It's like, you know, um, how can I kind of extend the life cycle of my garment or of my item? Can I repair it? Can I mend it? Can I pass it on to someone else? Can I sell it again? Um, and this kind of, you know, circular ethos is, is really kind of coming through, especially for that Gen Z, younger millennial customer where people are really sort of considering what they buy a lot more. They've got a more mindful attitude to consumption. Um, and we're seeing a bit of a backlash to kind of consumerist culture. So, you know, that kind of throwaway attitude um, that people used to have. And people are kind of actively buying less um, and supporting brands and supporting companies that encourage them to do so. So I think where this will have a knock-on effect for the travel market is where, um, you know, companies and airlines are being very, very vocal about 
things like offsetting carbon emissions, um, things like, you know, saying, do you really need this item? Do you really need to travel to this place? Kind of, you know, encouraging a bit more of a, just an ethical purchasing journey um, and kind of, you know, helping people to just live more mindfully um, and, you know, give people reasons not to just be really throw away in terms of their attitude, um, helping people to kind of consume fewer resources um, and encouraging really responsible consumption of their products. Um, I think, you know, now there's like certain um, banks um, and fintech companies that are partnering with credit cards, for example, and there's a Swedish fintech company over here in Europe called Doconomy, um, and they partnered with MasterCard um, in 2019 to actually kind of let you track and limit um, your CO2 footprint. So it, it, it tracks the impact of your purchases. And when you actually exceed your personal carbon emission budget, um, it blocks the payment. So it says, you know, transaction denied, you've reached your carbon limit. You you know, I can see a future where um, airlines are working in that way, you know, saying like, you know, you've got to be more mindful of your carbon footprint and things like that. I mean, it's pretty out there, but hyper consumerism is, is a really, really big threat to the planet. Um, and I think, you know, the, the direction of travel for this trend is where brands and companies um, and travel companies are really helping people to, to live better um, on less and kind of really extend the relationship of what they buy and what they experience. And Ashley, in China, are there any environmental drivers pushing the industry forward? Well, I think in China, the biggest driver, absolutely, apart from what uh, the ladies has just now mentioned, uh, apart the, from the big ecosystem and the fact that everybody wants to, one way or another, achieve that guilt-free status, we call it in China. Guilt-free means whatever I consume is good for me, my health, it's good for the environment, and it's good for society. So that's the guilt-free status. Apart from all that, I think the biggest driver is truly a government uh, you know, commitment and regulations and government direction, because China works. Uh, in a way that the government gives this big goal that we are after it and this is you know where we're going that's what we're building and then what happens all these big tech giants plus all these small micro businesses that are so uh, big and uh, so prosperous you know in all across china they go and realize that vision together with um, uh, essentially consumers so we see a lot of companies including let's say alibaba talking about jd jingdong talking about may 20 and ping bite dance etc cetera, etc cetera. they have very strong initiatives um, when it comes to you know recycling when it comes to certain communication they all have green festivals on their platforms where they encourage you know more clean brands green brands etc cetera, etc cetera. however at the end of the day as lauren said as nicole said in the beginning Mm, right now with the pandemic and in general, I would say China consumers, and I mean it in a good way, very often Chinese are pragmatic people. And when it comes to business, when it comes to technology implementation, and when it comes to products as well. So when it gets tough, people vote with their dollars and they go for convenience and they go for survival. Just like anybody else. So is there a particular drive? Suddenly people are sitting there, millennials or Gen Zs um, in China, and they say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna select specific product that is, you know, guilt-free and I'm gonna wait for it, let's say uh, instead of two days delivery, but I'm gonna wait for it to arrive from Europe. And very often right now with the disruptive, uh, disrupted uh, logistics, you need to wait for like one month or six weeks. Uh, Chinese consumers would most often say, no, I'm not interested in that. So very often they choose still convenience and pragmatic reasons, uh, but there is that awareness. So the awareness is getting bigger, which is 
Um, I love this book, Factfulness, essentially saying that it's bad, but better. So we're not uh, at any kind of um, great achievement level, but we're definitely getting better. And of course, the drive uh, and the commitment of the government, for instance, to reach uh, zero carbon emissions by 2060, they are definitely going to achieve that because when China government says they're going to do something when it comes to infrastructure projects, technology projects, etc., they are hitting their targets and usually one or two uh, years before uh, what they promised. So I'm very positive that there's going to be um, a lot of shift towards, um, you know, for example, two years ago, we already had this garbage sorting initiatives. They are very big across China right now. Um, EV and uh, the whole alternative uh, power sources are also very much promoted. China is building their smart cities that are running on alternative energy. And this whole ecosystem is truly being shaped and built right now. So I'm optimistic about the future, but currently, as mentioned, uh, people are making choices based on uh, their pragmatic and and uh, uh, simplicity and ease and convenience more than uh, ecological reasons. And talking about the governments, Nicole, across Southeast Asia, who is supporting the travel retail industry? I just came back from a holiday. So don't get jealous, but I went on an actual real holiday. And, uh, and I live in Singapore, which is one of the most mandated government places, running places in the world. And yeah, they do a brilliant job, but we all follow the rules here. And, uh, and effectively, it was the cruise to nowhere. So I went on the Royal Caribbean cruise. It was four nights. Um, and this is obviously a pilot project. So I, from what I understand, Royal Caribbean has well over 100,000 people around the world who are currently furloughed, except for this one crew and one ship that's operating out of Singapore. And obviously, um, it was very, very, you know, a very interesting experience because they'd work very closely to adhere to all the restrictions and to all the um, guidelines that we live on a daily basis here in Singapore. So, for example, alcohol, um, you know, in bars and restaurants disappears at uh, 10 o'clock at night. You know, you can't drink after that time. So that was mirrored on the cruise ship. Um, the cruise ship only had a capacity of, um, you know, instead of running it full, um, I think it was about 25%, 30% full only. So effectively, I was on, you know, this amazing holiday experience that was really, I mean, hopefully um, the travel of the future because it, there was fewer people. Um, the shops were, you know, nice and empty. There were, everything was managed. You had to use your QR codes and your tracer apps to get from uh, one part of the ship to the other. Um, you still had a great time. You still had all the things that make it a holiday. Um, but it was just so much um, better than a normal holiday because there was fewer people. Um, and what I did observe on the ship, I mean, they have all the duty-free stores, they have, you know, beauty shops and so on and so forth, was that, you know, consumers were on there buying, they were excited about their purchases. I mean, after all, um, from a duty-free duty perspective in this part of the world, you can save as much as, you know, 10 to 25% off um, the price of a, you know, street price um, when you buy duty-free. So people do shop duty-free when they can. And, uh, and I was, you know, observing people going in, you know, buying Le Maire products and getting really excited about them at the, you know, the tables. And so, you know, when it comes to government 
I think, you know, it's been interesting to experience this because, you know, I think this will be the way it will move forward, that if, you know, airlines want to get going again, if cruise ships want to get going again, they're going to have to work very closely with government in order to make this happen and to keep people safe, because the last thing they need is another PR disaster on their hands. And I think, you know, from an innovation perspective, there's almost a sense of, you know, a, a year ago when we looked at these cruise ships um, becoming literally floating, you know, petri dishes of COVID and to a year later now, probably some of the safest environments around due to the constant cleaning and the tracer apps and so on. You can see that, you know, when they need to, innovation will push things forward. And, uh, and I feel that, um, you know, governments have a huge role to play in this and travel in the future. And Laura, are there any European governments, uh, Middle East governments supporting the travel industry sector? I mean, I think, you know, a return to travel is really going to be a question of, of kind of political will and, and whether countries can, can work together to create a kind of safe set of guidelines. Obviously, it's, you know, it's less in the hands of, of us as passengers and, and more in the hands of, of politicians. Um, and I think you know, what, what we'll probably have to see is, um, you know, governments working together, especially in, in Europe, in the Shenzhen zone, where the countries are connected to kind of come up with um, a really sort of safe and secure set of, of sort of guidelines for traveling. Um, I think that the appetite will definitely be there, um, especially among younger people, especially amongst older cu customers who've got a lot of discretionary income to spend. Um, but, you know, I think one of the main issues that we're going to uh, struggle with, especially here in the UK, where obviously we have now left the European G Union, is that um, the British government has decided to, you know, end the VAT refunds for overseas visitors in British shops. And it's also ending airport tax-free sales of goods like um, electronics and clothing for people traveling to non-EU countries. So the UK is now the only country in Europe not to offer tax-free shopping to international visitors. So effectively, the government is telling international tourists, um, you know, particularly those from the Middle East and the Far East for whom shopping in London is a major, major draw, to basically go everywhere else but the UK to spend their money money. So, um, you know, that's really going to affect um, people's jobs um, and, and livelihoods. Um, and this is a real kind of hammer blow to an industry that's already struggling with um, the, imp the impact of COVID-19. So, you know, retailer revenue will suffer, airport revenue will suffer. Um, and I think what it means is that Luxury brands, especially over here in London, are going to just have to look closer to home. Um, you know, the luxury market in, in the UK has placed so much focus on, on China um, and on other markets around the world. Um, when there is, you know, still strong potential um, to kind of um, offset lost sales by engaging with locals who are spending more time um, in, in the area, like um, Selfridges, for example, in London, did a massive push um, in the summer, kind of courting the local London shopper um, because they couldn't um, get the spend from the overseas travellers. Um, and I think, you know, things like outlet retail, um, there's going to be a real um, knock-on effect there because um, in, in the UK, we have things like Vista Village, um, which is very popular with Chinese travellers um, and uh, these kind of outlet villages like that, which sell sort of um, discounted uh, luxury. Um, and, you know, there's going to be, they're going to be very hit hard by, um, by, the, uh, by the impact of, of what's going on at the moment. The Chinese government committed to travel retail as part of its domestic growth strategy in 2020. Um, Ashley, how has that developed in 2021? 
So when it comes to travel retail, then China Gombut is definitely looking at domestic uh, travel retail. We have uh, right now, let's say, Hainan being transformed into the luxury duty-free paradise and uh, a lot of people uh, fly there for one, two, three days to complete their purchases and then return. Uh, a lot of goes, even though that is discouraged, so this kind of um, basically guys that go and purchase on your behalf, like uh, sales representatives and come back and resell. So that is happening quite a lot. China is also building a lot. Right now, there's a massive investment uh, from the private sector when it comes to experiential um, travel within the country. For example, I'll give you an example. In the middle of the country, we have a hotel. It's a huge hotel with 15 giraffes. And you literally can have your breakfast and giraffes will be walking around you. So you literally can feel that you are somewhere in Africa. Then we also have uh, onsens uh, that make you feel that you're in Japan. We have seaside uh, spots that make you feel that you're in Thailand. So recreating those international experiences within the country. And China is one really, really big country. And of course, with those tourism zones also comes special um, special, we call them park, industrial park, luxury park, shopping park, where you can come in and also have uh, duty-free or uh, some reduced tax purchases. So that is definitely being built right now. When it comes to uh, international travel, then I think by now, uh, Chinese scientists and business people are being a lot more realistic than the rest of the world. And they are talking about uh, some restored demand and traveling happening in 2023, um, even though we have vaccines right now. But given uh, the fact that vaccines are not uh, lasting very long, or at least Chinese um, media uh, feels that you know there's still a lot of time to test how long does it last, given that our quarantines are prolonged. For example, if you're returning to mainland China right now, uh, you need to uh, stay in the hotel for three weeks and quarantine for three weeks. And uh, if you're coming from certain countries, you actually need to do two-week quarantine before even flying to mainland China. So all that makes it very, very difficult to imagine any kind of normalcy uh, coming uh, you know, into this inter international travel retail space soon. There are some districts, for example, Macau, uh, Special Administrative Region of China, um, you know, being kind of in this safe zone. So people from Macau and Guangdong can free freely travel uh, between uh, these two um, spots. But it doesn't feel very probable that China is going to include more regions uh, into this bubble uh, anytime soon. Mm, so domestic retail all the way. Interesting. Nicole, what could, should Southeast Asia travel retail industry look like in 12 months' time? The region's going to work hard at trying to get its tourists back and, um, and whether, you know, they'll start sort of um, domestically, obviously, and then it will roll out into the much talked about but yet to happen bubbles. Um, you know, Singapore, Malaysia was supposed to start one, it got delayed, there was supposed to be one between Singapore and Hong Kong, that got taken off the table when Hong Kong cases started to rise again, but the conversations are back. So we'll start to sort of, um, you know, the initial travel will start with the bubbles, and these will expand. I mean, Phuket in Thailand, 
um, is looking at becoming a safe island so people can fly in and um, and just stay in Phuket only, you know, and they cannot leave. And obviously Thailand itself is trying to reinvent how, um, you know, travel is perceived anyway. So we all have to do quarantine. I've, I've actually done 15 days quarantine myself when I re-entered Singapore last year. And, um, and it's not a pleasant experience, particularly when it's a government mandated hotel. But in Thailand, what they're doing is offering um, luxury qu quarantine. So you can stay at an amazing hotel. It's really not that expensive. Um, and you get to walk outside in a, in a time slot for 45 minutes. So, you know, they're just trying to be imaginative. They're trying to work with what they've got, which is very little. Um, and this will just start to build from there. So, you know, it's going to take probably two to three years before we um, see things you know, remotely go back to so-called normal. But um, in the meanwhile, you know, brands and uh, hotel brands, the travel industry and the governments are trying to, you know, do things. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier with the cruise, you know, there are um, ways of, you know, of, of moving things forward if governments and um, travel industry does work together. So it can be done. And funnily enough, you know, in the in the past of the world where we see a lot of the cultural tightness, um, where, you know, communities and, and people do follow rules, then we're going to see this change here first, I think. And what should the travel retail look like in Europe and the Middle East, Laura, in the next 12 months? I think brands and retailers can kind of prepare for a future recovery in travel retail by really kind of rethinking the customer journey that goes on inside the terminal. Um, you know, usually in airports, there's kind of quite very little that goes on in the stores. There's no actual kind of in-store experience. Um, so I think, you know, rethinking customer service offerings um, to really entice shoppers to spend time in stores during their journeys in the airport is going to be important. Um, and really thinking about how you can kind of bring that discovery factor um, back into store as long as it's, you know, so, sort of social distancing friendly and things like that, just kind of encouraging customers to, to linger, to spend. I think there is going to be pent up appetite to spend, especially when people are traveling, they're going to be excited. They're going to be, you know, in, in a good state of mind they're going to want to spend money um and then also i think you know kind of brands should respond um to um to traveling um in the airport with services that people have become accustomed to and used to in in stores um so things like contactless payments the ability to pre-order online and pick up in the airport um you know fewer people will be traveling but they'll likely be arriving at airports earlier to kind of deal with the increased travel regulations and there'll be a knock-on effect in terms of people spending more time in the airport so kind of really thinking about how you can service the customer spending a long time in your store also thinking about you know how can you sort of focus on more exclusive and, and localized offerings at airport shops? You know, is there something that I can only get here in this particular city? Um, I think travelers are going to be interested in kind of locally made goods more. Um, during the pandemic, there was obviously a huge focus on sort of community um, and shopping local. And I think that's going to continue. Um, but I think, you know, most importantly, companies need to kind of keep abreast of the psychological impact of, of the lockdowns and what that means for discretionary spending. I think, you know, people are going to be sort of turning have turned inward a lot and they've kind of reassessed um, themselves and their priorities and so they're going to be looking for different value propositions in what they buy and I think brands need to be aware of that. And is it pure growth in China over the next 12 months in travel retail Ashley? 
Well, when it comes to travel retail, I would say there will be um, probably some growth towards the end of the year. But right now, uh, as mentioned, CNY, we have 70% below uh, 2019 levels, right? So people are not really traveling because they're discouraged by the government. Then we're going to have another golden week coming up in uh, April, May. And that is also likely to be a little bit depressed. So probably towards the second half of the year, there's going to be more uh, flexibility and people are going to go travel. Uh, but in general, talking about cosmetics retail, uh, I would say retail and experience, what uh, Laura just now mentioned, uh, Starfronts cannot only offer products, but they need to offer experiences, um, unique tailored experiences, something that's provided locally. Um, that is very, very important. Skincare treatments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, secondly, live streaming. I mean, we already see a lot of airports, a lot of uh, stuff uh, from department stores, at, uh, hotels, etc., cafes, right? Live streaming on a daily basis. And when I mean what I mean by live streaming on a daily basis, is we see teams live streaming between five to eight hours every single day. So if you are, let's say, um, an airport hotel and you do not have travelers right now, we have very few travelers. So what you do there for five hours a day is you sit and you are talking about the cookies that you bake in your hotel, and then you're essentially selling these boxes of cookies online, which is very, very very, very popular. Um, or you can offer, um, again, you can book uh, and offer your uh, travel packages that people can use in the next three months or 12 months or one year. So, so live streaming e-commerce and dispersion integration is definitely very big. But at the same time, when it comes to, again, cosmetics and skincare, uh, offline channels are extremely strong. And in fact, when it comes to post-90s consumers, 86% uh, of them purchase beauty products offline. So younger consumers prefer offline because it's their first uh, time to purchase this product and they need a lot more consultation. So you need to put attention, as mentioned earlier, into this retail plus experience offline integration. And finally, one thing that we need to look and watch out for in the next 12 months in China is male beauty market because it continues growing. And uh, these uh, total search queries, for example, for beauty products on Douyin last year were 110 million. Out of them, 25 million were male contributed searches. So 23% of all search when it comes to Douyin, and Douyin is a platform where you essentially look at cute videos of um, uh, makeup tutorials, etc. 23% come from men. And uh, this search was only 16% beginning of last year. So definitely growing and growing very fast. So I believe 2021 will be a very exciting year when it comes to male beauty in China as well. So with that, I would like to thank my guests, Nicole, Laura and Ashley for taking part today and for you for listening.